Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. And welcome into a new episode of AOA. Thanks so much for joining us here on the program today as we talk about what is going on with rural America and issues impacting agriculture. I am your host, Jesse Allen. Great to be with you here today on the program. Coming up here, we're going to talk weather with John Baranek from DTN. He'll be joining us in segment two. In segment three, Michael Doherty will be joining us. He's formerly with USDA and Illinois Farm Bureau. We're going to get some updates on the ag economy coming up here later on in the show. And then in segment four, we're going to talk about some new programs from USDA with Miles Kagans. He'll be joining us coming up later in the program as well. Right now, though, let's talk what's going on in the commodity markets. Darren Newsom, senior market analyst at Bar Chart, is with us here today. And Darren, looking like fairly mixed trade activity here as we kick off a new week. Yeah, good morning, Jesse. It, it really is. Um, you know, there was a lot of question, particularly for me, coming into this week as we were getting ready for Sunday's open. I'm not a big believer in, you know, in opening prices. I don't think they mean anything. But, you know, we had the conflicting stories of bearish weather across the U.S. plains and Midwest coming out of the weekend, particularly for uh, soybeans and corn. Uh, with bullish headlines, I saw Saturday morning uh, of Ukraine declaring six Russian ports on the Russian side of the Black Sea uh, to be now in war zones, uh, basically, in uh, you could call it retaliation for what's happened uh, with Ukrainian ports, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, over the last week after the uh, after the grain deal was killed. So, you know, it, it could be a mixed bag. And what we saw overnight through early Monday morning was exactly that. We saw Chicago wheat with a double-digit gain, soybeans with a double-digit loss, corn kind of caught in the middle, sitting near unchanged, to losing a little bit of ground here early Monday morning. I, I'm watching as well some of the outside markets here, Darren. It's, mm -hmm. It looks like the outside market trade uh, fairly decent here. The Dow, S&P, the NASDAQ, and it seems like that trade, we might be looking at some more economic data coming out this week, some more inflationary type data later on in the week. Is that something that you're going to be keeping an eye on? Yeah, it, it will be. I, you know, I, it's like anything else. I don't put a great deal of stock in, in any government numbers, sure. uh, but I know that there's going to be plenty of chatter uh, about some of the some of the economic data that's coming out. What what I found interesting, you know, was Sunday night through Monday morning, there was so much talk, so many, you know, there were some headlines floating around that, you know, traders are going to be concerned about this new hawkish talk coming from the Fed. That's ridiculous. I mean, we, we've we've known for months. I mean, the U.S. Fed Chairman Powell, at least at the end of the July meeting, uh, if not June, said we could see uh, a couple more uh, price, uh, rate hikes here in 2023, and so we're running out of meetings. So you know, the one in the, the one in July was certainly expected, uh, and the next meeting is in September. So that. One one should also be expected. Uh, and then as we get uh, towards the end of the year, the next meeting is the November, December. And if we look at the Fed fund futures forward curve, it's actually telling us we could see a rate decline. So, mm -hmm. you know, all of this new talk about, you know, all of this talk about new hawkishness and this and that uh, seems kind of silly. Uh, I do think traders will be keeping an eye on some of the financial data, but, you know, really the long-term trends of these markets haven't changed with the big, with the, with the key to me right now is the big short position held in, in uh, bonds. Uh, and at what time do investors, at what point do investors start to cover some of that? 
Darren, as we look over at uh, soybeans, you mentioned losses there. I know I spent some time in uh, northern Iowa and southern Minnesota here over the weekend, and we saw some pretty beneficial rains come through there. I know we saw even better rains kind of work their way through parts of South Dakota into southern Iowa, northern Missouri, and then a lot of western Illinois really picked up some beneficial rain. Do you think that is maybe the biggest weight in this soy complex as we start off the week or not? Absolutely. Uh, you know, these markets are weather derivatives. And so, you know, it, it's what and, and as we come out of and as we come out of a wet weekend, we usually see it on a Monday morning. And then, you know, about mid morning or so, we, we flip over and start watching uh, weather forecasts again, which, by the way, still show more of the of the rain and, and cooler temperatures. So it seems like right now, you know, we've got a very similar situation to what played out in Brazil uh, when La Nina switched to El Nino. And John will certainly have more to say about this here in the second segment. Uh, but we've seen, you know, what, what we saw what happened down in Brazil when this happened. They had record production. Now, the U.S. isn't going to have record production. At least it doesn't look like we're going to because we don't have the acres. We knew we didn't have the acres going back to February. But, you know, it looks like overall production, overall yield and so on is going to be plenty, particularly since demand remains a question. Uh, And we can see this because there has been some commercial pressure in the market, not only in the spreads, but basis has been collapsing of late. Uh, We Mm -hmm. just can't seem to find that demand uh, to, to provide support to the market at this point. No, we can't seem to find that demand. You know, we've seen China step in a little bit more here Mm -hmm. in the last couple of weeks. But overall, I mean, their volumes are still lower. And just that overall demand picture, Darren, we talk about it here quite a bit. It's still just rather ugly right now for U.S. commodities. It is. And, and, you know, we've we've gone through trade wars. We've gone through spats and we've gone through all this and it just never seems to get any better. And again, these these markets are dependent on weather. And, and you know, the fact that you know, one of the things that kept us uh, kept the U.S. in the game was the was this adverse weather uh, in South America over the last number of years. Yes, it was still not great here in the United States either, but it kept us in the game uh, as far as the world's largest buyer. That's changed, you know, with with big production of soybeans and corn. Uh, coming out of Brazil, the main, you know, China's largest supplier. Uh, it just simply doesn't need U.S. supplies at this point. And so they're not going to buy. They're going to, you know, they'll do a little bit here and there. As you said, they're just kind of making some small purchases here and there. And a, and a big sell-off in the market tends to do that when you've got both futures and basis weakening. Uh, it will attract some buying interest, but just not to the degree to set off what, to, to offset uh, what looks to be increased production at this point. We're talking with Darren Newsom, senior market analyst at Bar Chart. Darren, let's look at the livestock complex just real quick here. Fairly mixed action starting off the week in cattle and hog trade. You know, we didn't end up with uh, as much cash cattle activity as we thought we would see at the end of last week, Darren. What's going to happen in this cash market? Box beef has been backing off. Packers have been unwilling to push the market. Uh, you know, those looking to sell have been holding off, waiting for Packers to raise their bids, and it just hasn't happened. So, you know, I guess we can make the argument that theoretically this is backing cattle up, and at some point we're going to see increased sales, and that usually means lower cash prices. So, you know, futures market certainly seems to be a bit concerned. Uh, they're just kind of in a holding pattern right now, at least in, in the live cattle. Feeders have shown some strength. Uh, you know, obviously they're getting a little bit of support off of the off the weaker corn market. And hogs, I'm still going to lean to the fact, you know, the rally's been led by the cash market, and that's really where you want to see it. That's what helped push uh, the live cattle market higher, certainly seeming to help lean hogs at this time. Well, Darren, great thoughts real quick before we let you go. Anything else you're watching throughout the markets here as we kick off the week? 
Yeah, I'll be interested in how the energy markets play out this week. Uh, we saw in the heating oil slash distillates, whatever you want to, however we want to call them. You know, at the end of July, they posted a, an important technical signal indicating they were getting ready to go higher, be, uh, and it would be fit in with their seasonal uh, seasonal pattern. So certainly need to keep a close eye on what's going on over in energies these days. Well, we appreciate the comments and insight. Darren Newsom, Senior Market Analyst at Bar Chart. Thanks so much for joining us here today on AOA, Darren. Thanks for having me on, Jesse. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk about the weather forecast for the week ahead and some of those heavy rains we saw over this last weekend. John Baranek with DTN joins us next here on AOA. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from throughout the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. On the latest episode of The Monthly Grind, we talked about the relationship between corn and poultry with Troy Schneider and Michael Granche from NCGA. Troy explains it a little bit more. Poultry is one of our biggest consumers, if not the biggest consumer in the livestock industry, consuming mm-hmm. 1.2 billion bushels of corn. When you take poultry exports and figure that in, the export of poultry brings 28 cents per bushel to the value of corn, and that's $4.1 billion in revenue to the corn industry. And Michael shares some of the continuing goals and outreach efforts that NCGA wants to do with its animal ag partners. Continuing all of the partnership and, and all of the conversations and discussions that we have with our animal ag partners is immediately where my mind goes to of, you know, what I'm thinking about for what continues to excite me and then and what's around the bend. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month for the latest episode of the Monthly Grind on AOA with our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. At Great Plains, we engineer durable soil management, seeding, and planting equipment to help you get more out of every acre, harvest after harvest. United in purpose, driven by devotion, we work tirelessly to provide solutions so you can build a legacy that'll last. Visit your local dealer or go to greatplainsag.com today to lock in your order and unlock your potential. Great Plains. Harvest starts here. Your grain cart, your auger wagon, your grain buggy, whatever you call it, whatever color, whoever's driving it, it serves a vital role in your operation every harvest. This year, make your grain cart the center of automated record keeping with a Harvest Make Grain Cart Bundle from ScaleTech. Reliability when it matters most. Accessible records when you need them. Adaptable solutions to fit your operation. We've taken the time to make sure our rugged products adapt to fit your current scale systems. So you have one less thing to worry about when it's go time. Make a Harvest Make Grain Cart Bundle your partner in automated record keeping at Scaletech.com. Scaletech. Your scale. Your way. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. 
And welcome back to AOA. Thank you so much for joining us here today on the program. Jesse Allen back with you as we are ready to take a look at what is going on with weather here across the Corn Belt and across the country. And I tell you what, some very beneficial rainfall seen across parts of the Corn Belt here over the weekend as we flip the calendar to August. And I'm sure there's many smiling farmers uh, across areas of the Dakotas, Nebraska, into Iowa, Missouri, and Illinois as well. Here to talk about it with us, DTN meteorologist John Baranek is back on the show here today. John, hope you had an awesome weekend. And uh, as I was saying, some really beneficial rainfalls across parts of the Corn Belt. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jesse. You know, I'm sitting out here southwest of Minneapolis, and I got some decent rain. I got maybe, you know, a quarter inch of rain um, uh, from an all-day event yesterday. But we saw widespread heavy rain across a lot of the Corn Belt with the system moving through. Um, If you're looking at from the Dakotas through Iowa, central Illinois, and into Indiana and and, uh, Michigan, I mean, we saw just a wide area of of two to four inches uh, in there. So, I mean, we saw some really good beneficial rain with that. That wasn't the only thing, though. We also had a, a cold front stay active there from kind of the Nebraska-Kansas area southeast into the Tennessee Valley, and, and that produced some widespread rainfall. Uh, we saw some heavy flooding rains last week uh, kind of around Missouri. But outside of that, I mean, you know, if you look at a seven-day precip map, it looks really good for areas outside of Wisconsin. Wisconsin kind of missed out on this, uh, this pattern here for the last week. But, you know, this, mm-hmm. this system that moved through over the weekend was really the, the impetus of a, you know, a much more active pattern we're going to see over the next couple of weeks. So um, things, things definitely uh, looking good here uh, for getting some smiles on more farmers' faces, I'll, I'll tell you that. Well, and to your point there, I, I know not every area caught the rain. So I, we still have some areas uh, of worry. Like you mentioned, Wisconsin, to me, really jumps out. As I, I've heard from some farmers in Wisconsin that, Depending on where you're at, some things look okay, but a lot of areas there in need of some rainfall, it sounds like. So what are on top of Wisconsin, what are some of the areas that maybe are still in need of some rainfall right now, John? Yeah, Wisconsin is probably the bullseye. You probably hit that one on the head there, especially uh, the southern third of the state where most of the corn's grown, corn and soybeans are grown anyway. Um, but that, uh, that area has just really not done so well. Um, it seems like every time we see a system go through, it either goes off to their north or their south. And, you know, there's always those sorts of things that happen during a summer, even though we've seen uh, much more beneficial rainfall over the last, you know, six weeks or so. Um, that's been kind of the the area that's missed it the most. But there's been some other pockets as well. Um, kind of eastern Kansas into southeast, southwestern Missouri has mm-hmm. been uh, a little bit more on the uh, uh you know, unfavorable side of the rainfall pattern. There's been some patches across Southern Illinois even, um, and parts of, of Iowa too, the, the far Northeast corner, uh, you know, it's right around Wisconsin anyway, but uh, that part of Iowa and, and Southeast Minnesota also haven't really, you know, benefited too much from the, from the recent, uh, from the recent pattern of, of, of more beneficial rainfall. Uh, but, you know, if, if you look at the whole, I mean, just the vast improvement from where we were at um, six weeks ago, uh, is 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 really remarkable. Well, John, I got to think that uh, the improvement here and these recent rains in many areas got to be super beneficial, at least on on the soybean side, helping set pods and and really helping give us a, a good start here to the month of August, which we typically know, John, is is a critical month for soybean development. Absolutely, and uh, yeah, this 
you know, coming two weeks is going to be really important for that. And luckily for anybody out there with soybeans, we've got a pretty good pattern to, to keep this going. So mm-hmm. um, what we've what we've seen is, is this system that came through over the weekend punched a hole right through a strong ridge out in the west and really opened the door for a bunch of systems to be moving through here over the next couple of weeks. And so we're going to see that. Um, we've got, you know, that the system's still moving through the eastern par- portions of the, of the Midwest today and I'll hit the east coast with some severe weather probably. Um, but, you know, we've got one, two, three, four systems, I think, coming up through the weekend uh, right behind it. Um, you know, a couple of them going through the Corn Belt, a couple going through southern uh, Canada. But, you know, areas of showers and thunderstorms are just going to be passing through with each one of them. Um, so it looks like widespread coverage here this week. Next week's a lot of the same. We don't get maybe um you know systems at, at a, as much of a frequent pace but uh, mm-hmm. we've got some a uh, couple of strong ones that models are, are kind of suggesting for next week as well so might see even widespread coverage with those anyway so um everything's really looking good in terms of precipitation uh, the other thing to talk about is temperatures yeah um, yeah i mean we, we've got uh you know uh, this this trough that kind of moved in brought in some cooler air pushed all that really hot stuff down to texas and we're still going to see the heat down there in texas and the gulf coast um, but you know, you get through you, the vast majority of the corn belt and we're sitting at temperatures where we should be, or maybe even a couple of degrees cooler. So, um, you know, lower heat stress, some good rainfall. This is going to be a good couple of weeks, uh, to see those yield, uh, potential improving, especially on those soybeans, as you mentioned. Yeah. And to your point about temperatures, I was going to ask about that. It seems like pretty seasonable, mild temperatures for many folks here in the next week or two. Texas still looking like it's going to remain hot. That's really feels like the the one spot that's still going to have some pretty warm temperatures here as we work through this week ahead, John. Yeah, it is. You know, I mentioned that that uh, uh, system that just split that ridge apart. Well, it mm-hmm. kept part of it there across the far southern uh, portion of the U.S. and into Mexico. So Texas, uh, the desert southwest, and even along the Gulf Coast. It's all south of this front that that uh, is stalling out here from kind of all around Oklahoma down into the southeast, and uh, that that area is going to be active with uh, precipitation too. Um, but yeah, just south of that, so most of Texas and then across the Gulf Coast, going to s- continue to be hot. Unfortunately, uh, we may get some showers there in the southeast to kind of mitigate that heat, but across Texas especially, it's going to be a, a lot drier. Uh, we may see some isolated showers there in West Texas at times. We got a little bit out there right now. Um, uh, but, you know, for the most part, Texas is, is going to continue to bake under this heat and they, they've really hit it, uh, pretty hard here over the last month, uh, with that heat. We've seen it relent in some other areas, but Texas has just been baking in hundred degree days, uh, mm-hmm. for at least the last four weeks. We're talking with John Baranek, DTN ag meteorologist, John, with this pattern shift we're seeing here to start off the month of August, are we starting to see more of a shift from this? neutral to more of the El Nino pattern that's been forecasted, John? A little bit. Yeah, History suggests that when we go from La Nina to El Nino, we get an active pattern and we get cooler temperatures in the Midwest. We're finally starting to see that really kind of take hold here over this this two-week pattern um, that's on tap. Um, And I would expect that uh, this this sort of pattern here, uh, I wouldn't say continues in perpetuity, but uh, mm-hmm. be more of a consistent feature as we go into the fall season as well. Now, it flips a bit when we get to, to the winter, and uh, we can talk about that some other time. But, yeah. uh, uh, you know, th- this pattern is definitely a good one here um, for a lot of us. And even across the South, where uh, we're dealing with the heat and drought, 
Um, eventually, this turns into a much wetter pattern there for Texas and the Gulf Coast, not necessarily in terms of tropical features that come through, but, you know, these fronts getting all the way down there and then and then uh, rainfall working along them. So uh, El Nino is definitely a more favorable pattern to be in, and, and we're getting more into that. Uh, it's just a shame for, for some of us that uh, it kind of came on a little bit later than we wanted it to, and we had to deal with all that drought from mid-May through mid to late June. But um, yeah, we, we've, we've certainly seen the turnaround that, that we wanted to see. Well, John, I know as well, coming up here this week, we have the DTN Digital Yield Tour, and uh, I wanted to have you talk about that. Just mentioned it for us a little bit. Uh, I'm wondering, I, you know, I know this is a combination. This is a partnership with Grow Intelligence, so a lot of, you know, yield data, you know, computer yield data and models, et cetera, et cetera. Talk about the Yield Tour just a little bit and what we could maybe expect with the tour here this week, John. Yeah, that's right, Jesse. Thanks for mentioning that. And uh, you can find that at DTNPF.com. It's completely free. And we'll have uh, we'll have coverage all week on that. Today, we're putting out the national numbers uh, for Grow Intelligence's uh, yield models for corn and soybeans. And uh, over the ne- Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we'll kind of dive into more of the states. But, you know, we're going to talk about, you know, how weather played into the, into the situation, um, how things kind of rebounded from the early drought and uh, kind of you know, it all stemmed from, if we can remember back to that late June derecho that moved through um, Iowa, Missouri, Illinois area, that was the kind of the, the start of, of the more active pattern. We really saw kind of a, a V-shape to the yield models. And it was uh, really quite interesting to see that change. We've just, how far we've rebounded from where we were at earlier on in the season. And we'll be talking about how that all played out here. Uh, and you can find that coverage at DTNPF.com. Well, we look forward to that coverage, and I know we're going to talk more about that later this week with some of your colleagues there at DTN. John, we appreciate the time here on AOA today, though, getting us caught up to speed on the weather outlook for the week ahead. John, thanks so much. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks a lot, Jesse. Thanks for having me on. John Baranek with DTN joining us here today on AOA. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk to Michael Doherty. He used to be at USDA and the Illinois Farm Bureau. We're going to talk broadly about the farm economy and more. That is coming up next as we continue with more AOA on the way right after this. The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 BC. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from Turkey. Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. 
Did you know Henry Ford's Model T was designed to run on either gasoline or corn ethanol? After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop. Over half of all the corn grown in the United States is grown in four states, Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, and Nebraska. A typical year has about 800 kernels in 16 rows. Corn will always have an even number of rows on each cob. One variety of corn grown in Peru has kernels so large that they are eaten individually. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And joining us now here on AOA, pleased to have with us, he is formerly with the Illinois Farm Bureau, and he had time at USDA early in his career. Now he's a consultant with Decision Innovation Solutions. He is in central Illinois. Mike Doherty is with us. And Mike, it's great to have you on uh, AOA with us here today. How are you, sir? Hi, Jesse. It's great to be on here. Well, thanks for the time. Looking forward to a discussion uh, on a few different topics here today, Mike. And just to start, uh, we've been hearing all this talk in the in the stock market, in the banking sector, in the rural economy about inflation. We've seen it hit our pocketbooks at the grocery store, et cetera, and the, the rural economy and all, all the worries that are out there amongst not only you know the Fed, but just you know rural Americans. Uh, what's your take on just the current state of our rural economy right now, Mike? Well, I think the rural economy is doing basically in line with the national economy. There's not any big divergence, except to the extent that the rural economy has been boosted by these high grain prices here in the Corn Belt. So, um, particularly um, you know the last few years, the income for farming for grain farm income has been excellent and this year you're seeing these uh, that as you've reported these bean price soybean prices uh going into next year looking pretty good at this point so uh you know which has always you know become more and more the money crop illinois does produce the largest soybean crop in the united states and i'm sitting in the county that produces the largest amount of soybeans of any county in the united states in mclean county and uh, that definitely boosts uh, local income here when you get these high grain prices. Of course, a lot of people don't realize, uh, Jesse, that um, 80, sometimes as much as 80%, even higher than that in some counties of the farmland is actually rented by those farmers. And who are the landowners who are benefiting from those high grain prices? Well, they're your dentist, your attorney, the person who lives next door to you who owns farmland, inherited farmland. And they're renting that out to those grain farmers at a higher price than ever because of these high grain prices. So when we talk about high farm income, I'd like people to understand about half of that gets redistributed to people who have a piece of the pie that are not farmers, including fertilizer salesmen, agri, uh, agri uh, ag equipment dealers and all of that. So so from that standpoint, the rural economy is doing a little probably a little better in the Corn Belt than the national economy is doing. Do we feel like it, it's taken maybe a little longer for some of the inflationary pressures that are out there? Obviously, the Fed keeps raising interest rates. Does it feel like it's taken a little longer to hit some of those areas in, in rural America versus some of the metropolitan areas? Mike, can you maybe touch on that a little bit? You know, um, as far as I'm not sure if I can parse it quite to the level you're talking about there, Jesse, yeah. but I can say the... Well, one thing, there is a degree to which agriculture is interest rate sensitive, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, that's what happened back in 1982 to 84. A lot of people were referencing that. 
when interest rates, but interest rates back then went to almost 15% uh, or above. I think prime hit, what, 14 something, uh, very high level. We're nowhere near that kind of level uh, here to, or, you know, in the economy today, but, but uh, far, it hit farm farming and the farm economy in interest rate sensitive goods, which is land and big equipment. So from that standpoint, and then farm debt. And, uh, but of course, as you know, our farm debt levels have been relatively low given the farm asset levels, but you know, it is a little, it's something to keep an eye on. So, mm -hmm. so there is that effect out here, but in general, uh, going back to inflation. So, you know, as inflation goes up, the interest rates do go up and partly by design because the federal reserve is trying their best to tampen down to really, they want to get inflation down to 2%. That's still their goal. And <clears throat> I think people are kind of questioning whether or not that's a good goal. I can tell you, most economists say, yes, that's a good goal. <laughs> yes, we need to raise interest rates. Yes, we've got to still work, we've still got work to do to get inflation down. Um, you know, now <clears throat> and I'm doubling back a little bit on the farm economy. Mm -hmm. Inflation has always been the friend of the farmer. When you hear, it makes no sense to me to hear farm associations complaining about inflation. Generally speaking, that helps farm because they don't rent all their land. They own a percentage of their land. And that part they, they own benefits by inflation because it becomes a great place for people to put their money to buy farmland, to hedge against inflation, therefore driving up the price of farmland. So that helps the portfolio or the balance sheets of these of these grain farmers. So inflation is, is in general still to this day, the friend of a, of a farmers to the extent that they own part of their farm outright without debt. But going back to the rest of us outside mm -hmm. the farm economy, um, we need, you know, from an economist's viewpoint, we need the, the feds to continue to really hike up interest rates a little bit more because aggregate demand simply hasn't slowed down enough. And that's why we're still having four and a half percent core inflation rates. And that's not good. Think about it. I mean, in two years time, if you're on fixed income, the baby boomers are the second biggest cohort population group in the United States. They're mostly on fixed income. They've lost 10% of their purchasing power for nothing. It's like a tax, you know, in, in two years time, 5% mm -hmm. this year, 5% the year before, it may be even higher. I've seen some estimates they've lost 15 to 17% of their permanent long-term retirement income is gone because of increased prices. So that's a serious problem. It is a serious problem. Well, and I know obviously you stay on top of what's going on with the economy and more. And I know you uh, you spend time with the Ag and Applied Economics Association, uh, their annual meeting uh, here in July. And uh, talk a little bit about that association, some of the things that happened at those annual meetings. I'm sure a lot of these same conversations happen amongst you and your colleagues there, Mike. Yeah, it's a it's it, you have to be an economist to call this to call that annual meeting fun. But, but uh, <laughs> it is the largest gathering of uh, professional and academic economists across the United States uh, of both applied rural economists and agricultural economists, mostly and some and agribusiness economists and so this is their national professional association uh, applied and agricultural 
Economics Association. So it's meeting in Washington. So of course, like a lot of association meetings, you do a West Coast one year, Midwest one year, like Chicago, and then you move it to Washington. The Washington ones are always the most fun because there you've got the Senate and uh, House Ag Committee uh, economists will come in and do a closed session. It's a lot. It'll be a packed room. <laughs> a lot of questions, especially in a farm bill year. So uh, that's something everybody uh, looks forward to is is that mix of the, uh, the the sort of the political economists coming from Capitol Hill down to the to the hotel, which is square in the district, uh, to talk to the rest of us and, and give us a little bit of the inside scoop as to what's going on in the negotiations on the farm bill and who's going to be affected and 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 in which ways. The rest of that uh, American uh, Applied Ag Economics Association meeting is. Interesting if you're an economist, lots of breakout sessions. People from around the world are there. Uh, graduate students from a lot of them from Asia, tremendous number. A few from South America, but much less of a presence as there compared to there was 20 years ago. Uh, what I've seen the biggest change has been the number of Asian students, Japanese, Chinese, particularly Chinese students, very sharp. They're at our schools. These are students here in the United States doing master's and PhD work in applied and agricultural economics. And they present a lot of their draft research papers and what they're working on. It's fascinating stuff to, to find out what, what's kind of bubbling up. And then you've got your, your tenured and, and uh, non-tenured professors from Purdue, Iowa State, uh, mm -hmm. University of Illinois. They are presenting their papers for approval from their peers. A lot of uh, interesting things to think about, and you mentioned that farm bill too, and I know that's something that we continue to talk about here as that deadline approaches. Mike, one other thing I want to ask you about as well, real quick, I know you still do a little bit of consulting work for USDA, looking at some various grant programs. Can you just touch on that for us a little bit, what you've been working on? Yeah, this was just a, a temporary thing uh, called the Value Added Producer Grant Program, um, which has been around for quite a long time, I, at least a, I think a couple decades it may be. But, um, so that helps provides a matching funds. Now, the, the farmer uh, applicant has to match the government money or through in-kind service has to uh, make some kind of a sacrifice to match that that taxpayer's money dollar for dollar. And so that's, so it's a matching funds program like most USDA programs, but they have to submit a lot of uh, paperwork. Uh, they have to submit a business plan, a feasibility study, a lot of things to convince uh, people who are evaluating those grant applications for their worthiness and whether or not we want to put some taxpayers dollars at risk to give to that person uh, for a, a fixed 36 months uh, maximum to develop a value-added business that will use their farm product and add value to it. So that could be a lot of different things, as you can imagine. And so I'm one of those evaluators doing this uh, on the side. And, so, and it's interesting. You get some insight as to, you know, what kind of, you know, ideas people have out there uh, coast to coast. Uh, so there's that program and it's doing quite well, I think, and it, and it does its job well. And then the other one that I, I'm not involved with, but it's out there, which is a organic marketing grant program. And that's something I wish people would take a look at online, Google it up to the USDA, find the USDA site. There's a lot of money in that program. And I think they've had, they haven't had the best uh, turnout 
in turn, it's a new, totally new program. That's part of the problem. It's a new program. So it takes a while for public to catch on to it. And it's got a deadline. I think its deadline is August 11th. And uh, so if somebody's out there, if they're already certified organic and they're looking at uh, doing something new in terms of marketing their product or adding processing to their uh, business for that organic product, they ought to take a look at that grant program. Well, a lot of great thoughts. We appreciate the time and insight, and we'll have to get you back on the show again real soon. That is Mike Doherty. He's a consultant with Decision Innovation Solutions there in central Illinois. Mike, thanks so much for the time today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jesse. All right, up next, we'll talk with Miles Kagans about some new USDA programs. That's coming up next here on AOA. On the latest episode of The Monthly Grind, we talked about the relationship between corn and poultry with Troy Schneider and Michael Granche from NCGA. Troy explains it a little bit more. Poultry is one of our biggest consumers, if not the biggest consumer in the livestock industry, consuming mm-hmm. 1.2 billion bushels of corn. When you take poultry exports and figure that in, the export of poultry brings 28 cents per bushel to the value of corn, and that's $4.1 billion in revenue to the corn industry. And Michael shares some of the continuing goals and outreach efforts that NCGA wants to do with its animal ag partners. Continuing all of the partnership and, and all of the conversations and discussions that we have with our animal ag partners is immediately where my mind goes to of, you know, what I'm thinking about for what continues to excite me and then and what's around the bend. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month for the latest episode of the Monthly Grind on AOA with our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. The average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white-shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown-shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. Your grain cart, your auger wagon, your grain buggy, whatever you call it. 
Whatever color, whoever's driving it, it serves a vital role in your operation every harvest. This year, make your grain cart the center of automated record keeping with a Harvest Make Grain Cart Bundle from ScaleTech. Reliability when it matters most. Accessible records when you need them. Adaptable solutions to fit your operation. We've taken the time to make sure our rugged products adapt to fit your current scale systems. So you have one less thing to worry about when it's go time. Make a Harvest Make Grain Cart Bundle your partner in automated record keeping at scaletech.com. Scale Tech, your scale, your way. At Great Plains, we engineer durable soil management, seeding, and planting equipment to help you get more out of every acre, harvest after harvest. United in purpose, driven by devotion, we work tirelessly to provide solutions so you can build a legacy that'll last. Visit your local dealer or go to greatplainsag.com today to lock in your order and unlock your potential. Great Plains. Harvest starts here. The average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers, and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white-shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown-shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger, larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Looking back into the history of agriculture, the first major pork packing plant was started in Cincinnati, Ohio by Alicia Mills in the year 1818. Nicknamed the Porkopolis, 85,000 head of pigs were processed at this plant each year. This ag history is brought to you by the American Ag Network. Information America's farmers and ranchers need. AOA. Now, back to Jesse Allen. Now here on the program, we're going to learn more about the application process that is open for USDA farm loan borrowers who have faced discrimination. This is something that has opened up here just in the last couple of weeks from USDA. And right now, we are going to learn more about this. Joining us on the program, Miles Kaggins. He's a spokesman for Region East of the USDA's Discrimination Financial Assistance Program. Miles, thanks so much for joining us here today. I hope you're doing well. Jesse, I'm doing well. Happy to join you today from Manhattan, New York, and uh, it's a great opportunity to reach your audience across the nation. Well, let's dive in and, and talk about this program. And for folks who maybe haven't heard a whole lot about this, I know this is part of uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, Section 22007, directing USDA to provide this assistance to farm loan borrowers who face discrimination. Just to kind of start, Miles, can you give us a 
a kind of an overview of what this whole application process is? What What is going on here with USDA with this program? Sure. Well, as you mentioned, section, section 22007 of the Inflation Reduction Act, it provides $2.2 billion in financial assistance for farmers and ranchers who experience discrimination in the USDA's farm lending program prior to January of 2021. And this program is uh, being implemented in a unique way. Uh, as by law, this, this financial assistance program is being implemented by non-governmental program administrators. I'm representing the Windsor Group. The Windsor, Windsor Group uh, is a woman-owned, veteran-owned company that was awarded this uh, contract to implement the application process in the Eastern United States. Another group, Analytic Acquisitions, is doing Western region, and there's a third group that's responsible for websites and call centers. Our priority over the between now and 31st of October is to reach as many farmers as possible. We're opening up offices in states and locations where we know there are farmers and also having field outreach events across the nation to provide technical assistance for free, absolutely no cost for the farmers to apply uh, into this opportunity to uh, get financial assistance from the program. Well, Miles, I think about this program and, you know, it talks about discrimination and, and landowners and, and farmers and ranchers who've experienced some form of discrimination in USDA farm lending. And I have to think the definition of discrimination in this program could probably take on a few different forms, maybe not necessarily even just traditional discrimination that we think of, but maybe some other forms as well. I, can, you, can you talk about that maybe a little bit or expand upon that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Again, to be eligible for this program, uh, to receive the financial assistance, a farmer, rancher, or even forest landowners, landowners must have experienced discrimination by the USDA in USDA farm lending programs. These are the programs administered by the Farm Service Agency, or even further back in history, the Farm Home Administration. Mm -hmm. The discrimination could come in in many forms. There are times where farmers received uh, the loans, but maybe those loans came with terms that were very difficult for the farmers to, to pay back, or the farmers were entered into loans that did not uh, provide enough enough um, financial assistance for them to purchase the seed or or purchase the machineries or or uh, maintain the lands they needed to to conduct farming or ranching activities through the application process and and let me let all your listeners know this is a very thorough application the farmers must provide background uh, on what they experienced and that documentation will be sent up through a centralized system and after the 31st of October, there will be decisions made on the applications in the latter part of this year with a uh, anticipated payments in these financial assistance in the early part of 2024. Well, I know there are paper-based forms via mail or in-person delivery to local program offices that people can fill out or the online uh, e-filing portal at 22007apply.gov. We can talk more about that in all in a second. Miles, I know there are a lot of organizations that are involved with making sure this program is a success as well. Can you talk about them just a little bit? 
in addition to the vendors who are uh, opening offices across the country and conducting field outreach events, USDA is partnered with community-based organizations. A few of them include the Farmer Veteran Coalition, Intertribal Agricultural Project, Land Loss Prevention Project, and the National Young Farmers Coalition, as well as other groups. Everything that we publish online uh, in our printed documents are in English and Spanish. And we have a call center that's open from 8 a.m. Eastern till 11 p.m. Eastern daily. And that number is 800-721-0970. Again, that's 800-721-0970. We want as many farmers as possible to learn about this program and determine if they're eligible to apply uh, by reaching the offices or calling the help center. And again, that application process, I know you mentioned, Miles, it is thorough, but again, a couple different ways. Probably the easiest, I would think, would be e-filing online at 22007apply.gov, right? We, we uh, encourage e-filing. It's a way where farmers can track their applications, confirm their application is complete. But we recognize that there is a... Uh, Digital, digital divide in this country. Many, many of our farmers are um, a little bit further away from the internet, so they are mm -hmm. able to come into offices or mail in their applications, and they will all be processed after the 31st of October. Fantastic. Well, again, uh, reach out to the local offices, or you can call that helpline. Miles, what's that phone number for folks to call again? Can you give that to us one more time? Absolutely. Our national call center is available uh, from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern at 1-800-721-0970. And the website that you mentioned earlier, which is 22007apply.gov, has a list of local offices and outreach events. I encourage all of your listeners to go check it out and even follow us on Instagram at 22007apply. Fantastic. With that, spokesman for Region East of USDA's Discrimination Financial Assistance Program, Miles Kaggins, thanks so much for joining us here today on AOA, and we appreciate the time. My honor to speak to your audience. Have a great one. And we are out of time here on AOA today. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jesse Allen. Have a great rest of your day. Did you know Henry Ford's Model T was designed to run on either gasoline or corn ethanol? After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop. Over half of all the corn grown in the United States is grown in four states, Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, and Nebraska. A typical year has about 800 kernels in 16 rows. Corn will always have an even number of rows on each cob. One variety of corn grown in Peru has kernels so large that they are eaten individually. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 BC. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. 
These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. 